And so I just booked the next flight out. Didn't know anything. Like, this is not him saying, here's a job offer or anything. This is literally a sit-down coffee. Like, <laughs> and so... This episode is with the one and only Dwayne Roy. We talk streetwear, overlap between the worlds of art and venture capital, better ways to do cold outreach, and his newsletter on marketplaces called Double Sided. Dwayne's job at Lambda School is to help other people get jobs. His path from dropping out of college, knocking on a lot of doors, and forging a path into the startup world definitely informs his current work. Hope you enjoy. bit about your interest in contemporary art and that whole world yeah so i have this best friend and he's a contemporary artist right now and so i met him in high school and we've been close ever since and it was just super interesting to me he was telling me how early on he was just this very scrappy person who pretty much had nothing and he started just making work paintings etc and just selling them for hundreds thousands of dollars and like Pretty recently, literally last year, a work sold for over a hundred million dollars. And so that was just just crazy to see. And as I was studying more about that and studying more about venture capital, I saw some similarities. As you invest in a company, especially at the early stage, you're not investing necessarily in the company, you're investing in the people building the company. And so it's the same with the art world. You're investing in the artist, which is the person. That's one similarity. The second similarity is that there are very long feedback loops in both venture and art. It takes years to, after you invest in something to see if it's going to be successful. And once again, if you're investing like super early, an artist just coming out of grad school or artist just coming out of undergrad, there's no way to see that they're going to be successful. You just bet on their ability and their skill and who they are as people. And that's the same when you invest in a company. And so recently I've just been making small investments into art. All my friends around me are saying, like, you need to be investing in stocks and things like that. And I'm just like, no, <laughs> like, I want something tangible that's going to be in my house that I can look at and that I can just show other people that looks nice visually and aesthetically that also has, like, some sort of cultural value. And so my investments have been small. They have been, like, pre, pre, pre-seed, I guess, investments, a thousand bucks, maybe two thousand bucks. But yeah, the, both worlds are very interesting. And I, by no means, am an, an accredited investor, and so I can't invest in startups right now. So this is the, the closest thing to it for me. Yeah, I think that ties a little bit into some side hustles you had in your childhood and your interest in material items. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so when I grew up, it was, it was, it was me and my mom, and because of that, I needed something to, to I guess, fill the void. So my mom pretty much spoiled me. And I guess that that is what led my interest into material items. I do like hype items. I'm called the office hype beast at work. So that is definitely one of my titles. But material items, a lot of people just see them as like, oh, this person's very materialistic and things like that. But what they don't understand is that like streetwear is an entire culture and it has a lot of value behind it. And it's a lot of like historical context behind clothing. And so it's not just about buying a hype item. It's about buying something you genuinely like because in many cases it may make you feel better it's not like a status thing no it's just because this is what i like and this is who i am and i want to express it to the world and so that's how i view clothes and things like that and so 
growing up, my side hustles were buying and selling clothes, buying and selling sneakers, selling sneaker bots. A friend had built a bot. Uh, a bot allows you to just buy a shoe at an extremely fast rate, faster than any human can, especially if it's like a really rare limited shoe. And so I bought the bot for my friend for like five bucks and I put it on eBay for like $12. And so small profit there and thousands of people bought it. I think I even saw someone buy one a few months ago. <laughs> it's not functional, but I, I took the eBay post down, but people have just been buying it over time. And I was about 12, 13 years old when I did that. So it was a very fun experience. And I was a kid that was just waiting in lines every time something hot dropped and whether it was cold, hot, I didn't care, right after school, just to get the, the next hype item, I guess. Yeah, really cool. And were you interested in tech at that time or was it more so just doing entrepreneurial type things? Yeah, at the time, I didn't know anything about tech per se. I knew about like e-commerce. I knew about, I guess, the technicals behind like Python scripts and things like that because of the sneaker bots. But I was introduced to tech pretty late. I guess that's when it kicked it off. And I was like, this is very interesting. But I was introduced to tech through, I was a lifeguard and I was working at a pool and my manager invested in stocks a ton. And uh, he just told me about this entire world and told me about tech companies he was investing in. And from there, that's when I learned about all of the like fame companies and things like that. And that's what sparked my interest in tech. Gotcha. So it got put on your radar a little late. Was it top of mind for you when you went off to college? It actually was. When I went to college, I went to study computer science, but at the time I didn't know a CS degree was mainly theoretical. There's no, no practical aspects at all. At least at the school I went to, we were learning outdated technologies like Java and things like that. Definitely wasn't interesting to me. I studied CS and I just didn't really understand it. <laughs> uh, like I, I just couldn't get my head wrapped around it. And so I feel like if I was still in school, I would be studying something like economics, more of my interest or philosophy, something like psychology, something like that. Yeah, that's when I got into it. Yeah. Is there any scenario where you would consider going back to school? Like what would need to be true for you to do that? That's an interesting question. After I dropped out and, and moved to like California, I was thinking about going back, but my only caveat was that like it would have to be like a school like Stanford or something. But I don't see any world where I would go back to school. I just don't think that it's, it's necessary for me now. Everything that I was looking for in school, I already kind of have now. You go to school to learn, right? And right now I'm learning at a much faster rate than I feel like I would be in school. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't see any case scenario where I would go back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's yeah. one of the biggest differences between our generation and our parents' generation, where you don't need that diploma as a ticket to to get a job that you enjoy. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And I mean, of course, there are pros and cons. And the benefits are that, you know, socially, you have more people that you can connect with, of like people say networking and things like that. But you can very much do that with Twitter or whatever field you're in, Instagram, maybe, uh, maybe even TikTok, you know, you never know. But I just feel as though it just depends on the person. So for me, that's outside of school, which is better for me. Can you talk a little more about your decision to drop out and then move to California? Yeah, so I was in my philosophy class and I was just very not happy at all. And once the class was over, I just I just went outside and sat down and I literally saw a person banging their head on the table because <laughs> this is this is like around finals and things like that. And I was like, like 
it should never be this serious where someone is, is physically harming herself. Like, it should never, never be this serious. And so I went back to my room and I just made a decision. Like, you know, I like to use Jeff Bezos's regret minimization framework, like shoot yourself to 50, 60 years old and think back, would you regret doing what you're about to do? And if it's no, then do it. If it's yes, then don't do it. And I felt as though at the time I wouldn't regret dropping out. So I dropped out. I went to the office, dropped out. I told my mom after I dropped out. So she couldn't convince me to not do it. I knew she would have. And she was pretty mad at me. But at the time, I was like, okay, well, dropped out now. What am I going to do? I'm interested in technology. I'm interested in like finance. What's the best place to go? Uh, California. And so I thought that Silicon Valley was like San Jose, California but it's more so San Francisco. And so I did not know that when I went out there. So I went to San Jose and it was very dull, very dry, very just not interesting. <laughs> and I didn't have a lot of money. So I just moved into this Airbnb and I was living with like 10 people at the time. And it's an Airbnb. So people are just coming in and out. Some people are there permanently, but most people are just coming in and out and like there are two showers. So uh, on my side, there were about six people using one shower. And it was very scrappy. It was not fun at all, but it allowed me to just get into the headspace, be around interesting people, which is all I wanted at that time. And like, there were so many different people, like someone was working on the company, building like a marketplace to buy and sell items similar to eBay. Another person's like this full-time cryptocurrency trader. <laughs> like, and some other people were like philosophy students. And so it was just very interesting to be around people like that. And I was working on the company at the time. Obviously, it didn't work out, but it was a very fun experience. And so from there, I just stayed there for a few months, ran out of money, had to go back home. And I just worked on, pretty much became a person that worked on Reddit projects, whatever they were, mostly like machine learning projects. And that's what I did until I reached out to a founder on Twitter, Ryan Delk, who was the COO at Omni. He made a tweet just like, you know, looking for someone scrappy uh, to work on this project with me at Omni. And I just tweeted at him, DM'd him, said, hey, this is me. This is what I can do. Give me a question. I responded. He liked my response. And uh, he pretty much said, are you based in San Francisco? I said, no, but I'll be there this weekend. This was like a Friday. And so I just booked the next flight out. Didn't know anything. Like, this is not him saying he has a job offer or anything. This is literally a sit-down coffee. Like, <laughs> and so I was just looking for anything to just get out of my mom's basement. And so I went there and from there, I, I just never left. I, I didn't end up getting a job with Omni, but I was able to be in San Francisco and to interview with a few different companies and eventually land a job there. So, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Ryan Dell, based on what I know about him, has built his career on a bit of cold outreach just because kind of like you, he didn't grow up in San Francisco. What did you learn about that process and trying to talk to some of these different founders in the Bay Area? Yeah, so in the process, I did what normal people do. You create a resume, you submit the resume to a job board, and hopefully you hear back. For me, I didn't hear back <laughs> because I didn't really have anything on my resume. So... I essentially just said, you know what, I'm just going to go to the top of the top. I'm just going to start emailing CEOs. And so I made a list of companies that I, I was interested in. And instead of optimizing for like applying to 50, 60 different companies, like most people do, I said, I'm going to focus on maybe uh, five to 10 companies that I would really, really love to work for. 
and I'm going to write a very compelling email <laughs> and try to get in front of them. And so there were about five companies that I reached out to you that in every case scenario, I at least had a, a first interview with them, whether it's a coffee meeting or whether it's like a, a 45 minute Zoom call, whatever it was, the emails were compelling enough to, to get an interview at every single one of the companies. Yeah, yeah. And then if someone like you at Lambda School did not exist, if the students were completely on their own, is that an approach that you would recommend to them? Yeah, so if a Lambda School student is looking for a job at an early stage startup, I don't know if this works at massive companies, it might, but I was focused on like early stage pre-series A startups. So if a Lambda School student is definitely looking to get in front of a person, I would do what I did, but because they're an engineer, they can actually build something that could be beneficial to the business. And so if you're in any case a designer or an engineer in a capacity where you could physically do something that could actually impact the business, then I would do that as well as like write a nice email, like, hey, I see this bug or something like that, or I think a website would look better if it was redesigned this way, something like that. I would definitely do that. I would recommend that to a language student. Yeah, that's interesting. And then I guess one of those emails led to your work at Truebill. Can you talk a little more about that? Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that was actually a very rare case where I had applied on AngelList and the CEO was just looking for someone like me, just very hungry. I wrote a nice message in the AngelList box, but it still had like the resume and things like that. And so because it was an early stage startup, they were interested in like within a few hours, they just said, you know, can you come into the office? And like the next day I started the job there. Yeah. And then what were you guys working on there? What was your responsibility? So that was like my first job in tech. And they say if you get an opportunity to work at a company that you believe could be very successful, don't really focus on the role that you're taking. Just take the job there, whatever it is. And so for me, that was customer operations. And so I just spent a lot of my time just talking to users, trying to understand what problems they have with the app and just communicating that to the CEO, the, the head of design and things like that. And so it's just a lot of customer support as well as they had a service. They have a service called build negotiation where, you know, you have a, a bill that you feel as though you're paying too much for, you submit the bill and uh, on our end, we negotiate with your bill provider. And so I was the lead negotiator on that end. And that was a good stream of revenue. And so I felt as though I had a lot of impact on that side. And so that was primarily my responsibility, just more customer operations. So I guess that was your foothold in the startup world. How did that inform what you wanted to do next? Yeah, so I wasn't necessarily interested in customer operations, but it helped me learn how to solve people's problems. And so I knew that from that moment, I wanted a role where I could solve people's problems at scale and also build relationships with companies as well as with people. And so I knew that that wasn't necessarily, you know, product management, but that was more so business development. That was more so sales. And I liked that aspect. And so I was just looking for my next role, a role where I could build those relationships. It just looked like that role was sales and business development partnerships. And then yeah. I believe if I remember correctly, you had a stint at Ernest Capital. Can you talk a little more about what they do? Because I think it's a bit of a unique strategy. Yeah. So at the same time, a few months after I started my job at Lambda, I saw this posting that Tyler Chinga has posted, the GP at Ernest Capital. 
and he was pretty much just looking for an intern to just helping the fund work better and just helping build the connections between founders, mentors, and LPs. And so as an intern, you, you pretty much <laughs> do a lot. But um, what's interesting about Ernest is that they have this belief that not every company needs to take venture financing. You can build a massive company and still maintain a lot of your sanity and then a lot of your ownership and just your equity in general. And that's a very different model than traditional VC because it's like, you know, grow at all costs, give away 40, 50% of your company to VCs. And that just gives away a lot of power and control that you have as a founder. And that's really what's different in their fund, as well as like many of the, the LPs are actually mentors to the founders. And these are people who also have the same belief that they have. And so a lot of what I did was just internal tooling where I was a growth intern. And so I focused on just building a lot of internal tools and things like that. And it was about a four month stint, but it, I learned a lot about like the internal of, of not necessarily a venture capital firm, but uh, a seed fund. Yeah. It seems like their approach is very different from a traditional VC. Are the goals that they have very different from what you would think a normal venture capital firm does? Personally, I don't think it is. I think that the, the same outcome is expected, which is the outcome is that the company will be successful. What I do think is different is that like the level in which the company is successful, many VCs may aim for a billion dollar outcome, whereas a fund like Ernest Capital is fine with a 100 to 200 million dollar exit because if you're aiming for a billion dollar outcome you're investing in probably not a ton of companies and you're very selective and so you miss out on many other great companies who may also not be looking to have that billion dollar outcome who may just want to sell for 100 million dollars and if that's the case you you just open up your pool to so many other different companies that you previously would just not even look at. Yeah. How often were the founders purely bootstrapping up to that point or generally just coming from different backgrounds than founders of venture back startups? Yeah. So we, we didn't make a ton of investments. We made about uh, total investment in about 10 to 15 companies, I believe. And it seems like the founders came from various different backgrounds. Some worked at venture back startups. But every founder just had the, the belief that, you know, they were going to do this thing. Most of the teams were under five people, that they were just going to do this thing on their own. They, they were fine with offshoring some development or things like that. Most of them were, were bootstrappers, just funding for makers and bootstrappers. So we're primarily looking for people who are willing to do what's necessary to keep as much ownership as they want and still grow at a, at a good, good rate. Yeah. And I guess that brings us to the present. Can you share a little bit more about what you do at Lambda School and maybe what people don't realize about the way that technical recruiters work? <laughs> yeah. So at Lambda School, my main responsibility is to, to kick off our partnerships with companies based on the East Coast. That's like Florida, North Carolina, DC area, Atlanta, et cetera. And so the belief there is that once students dedicate nine to 10 months of their life to our program, we should make it as easy as possible for them to get a job. Because the way our business model works is that we don't get paid until a student gets paid. And so we're incentivized to help them get paid <laughs> because that's how we make money. 
So there I'm just finding interesting companies, companies that students may be interested in or companies that I think students may be interested in and getting in front of the right people, usually directors of talent acquisition, in some cases CTOs, depends on the size of the company of engineering. And we're pretty much just starting a partnership with those companies saying like, hey, we see you have this open role. We believe our students may be a good fit for this role. Let's have a conversation to see if, if there's a fit. And if so, here are some amazing students. And that's pretty much, pretty much how we, we work right now. And through the process, I've learned a lot about how people look at talent, specifically like technical recruiters. Every company is different, but we have like a very specific criteria based on the curriculum that we teach. In some cases, it's all about the size. A lot of students probably don't want to work at a super early stage start with like less than five people. And it's always better to, to get a company to hire students at scale, companies that hire five to 10 students, either at one point or throughout the year. That's always very good for us, um, as well as for students. And so you learn a lot about what people look for in, in talent, specifically like technical talent. In my learning, there's a, a stigma around like people that come from boot camps. And many people are a bit skeptical of boot camp graduates because many boot camps are no more than say 12 weeks. And how much could you possibly learn from going from someone that's non-technical to web developer or software engineer in 12 weeks? It's, it's not a lot. And so I focus on communicating that to them that we're not a traditional boot camp. Like we're very close to a year and many boot camps don't teach computer science fundamentals. We focus on computer science fundamentals and things like that. And uh, just to really get them interested in how we are different than a traditional coding bootcamp. And so that's, that's pretty much my job. My job is to get the students jobs at great companies. Yeah, that's awesome. And then knowing what you know now about what these different CTOs and heads of talent acquisitions want, would that have changed your decision at all to drop out as a CS major in college? <laughs> yeah, if, if I didn't take a job at Lambda, I would probably be a Lambda student. I don't know if I would go into development. I feel like I would more so go into design because I have developed things before. Um, I know a few languages, but it's just, it's not of my interest, but I really do like looking at something and just recreating it visually through like Figma or something like that. So I feel like I would definitely go through the design track and through Lambda is where I would do it. And then can you talk a little bit about what double-sided is and why that was something you wanted to make? Yeah, so double-sided was uh, a newsletter that I decided to test out. It was always just a test to see if people would be interested in something like this because I had some time on my hands and I just wanted to, to, to do something that could be beneficial to me as well as others um, that can contribute to my learning. As a dropout, you always have to just be constantly learning. And so... It was a newsletter focused on interviewing where I interviewed marketplace founders, people who built pretty much any type of marketplace where you had buyers and sellers of some sort. In some cases, that's just a two-sided marketplace, but in others, there are three or four-sided marketplaces. It's just called double-sided because that's what a marketplace is. It has two sides usually. And as I mentioned, I didn't have a particular focus. I was just any marketplace that I came across that I thought uh, was interesting. I, I just reached out to the founder and interviewed them. And in there, I met some really, really great founders of pre-seed startups, seed state startups, even 
post series A startups. And I just wanted to give a varying level because uh, I know there's a lot to unpack and learn through all of those different stages. And in some cases, people hired their first employee because they read the newsletter or I, I interviewed a founder and I, I may have made an error in the interview. And so the founder's like, every person that's applying to our, our uh, the open jobs we have, <laughs> they're looking at the interview. <laughs> so can you, can you fix this one word? Like that happened a few, few months ago. And it's just very great to see that that things like that happen just through building something. Yeah, I definitely discovered some interesting startups just through reading those interviews. How, how do you go about sourcing those different startups that a lot of people probably have not heard of before? Yeah, so my focus starting out was I wanted to focus on companies that people probably have not heard of before because the ones that people have heard of before, they probably already have press around them and people probably already know what they do. But there are so many companies, so many startups in the world that just get lost in the noise. They're doing really great things, but no one knows about them. And they are in the beginning stages, and there's not much documented on the very beginning stages of starting a company. And so I wanted to, to unpack what people were learning as they were building versus they've already built and like things that they've built before at. Um, it was more so learning as you go. I think that's that's a very great way of looking at learning. And so I focus on a lot of pre-seed companies. Okay. And then very big lofty question, at least in the immediate term, you're focused on learning at a high rate. Long term, if you had to think 60 years from now, what are some things that you want to have accomplished or done? Through like my earnest internship and through just being in the startup ecosystem for a few years, I know that in the future, I definitely do want to be a founder. And I, I do believe it will be around investing, funding, um, as well as some sort of talent acquisition, uh, something in that realm. And so I feel as though if it's not an early stage fund, it will most likely be a company geared towards something around the talent realm. <laughs> so either founding or funding, that's my next goal. That's the next step. And that's something that I feel as though I can work on for the next decade or so. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like you have very specific, unique experience in that realm. So, yeah, I definitely like to think that, you know, there is founder market fit that if you don't really believe that you're the best person to build a company in a certain space, then you shouldn't really do it. But that's not to say that people aren't successful in like areas that they aren't experts in. You can still build a company there. But me personally, I just want to work on something with a problem that I personally have that I feel like I just have domain expertise. And then before I let you go, Ash and I always ask our guests this, but are there any books or podcasts that have had a very large impact on your life? Yes, this is probably not contrarian or anything like that. But um, three main books that I really like is Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Frankel, uh, Victor Frankel. Um, I like philosophy, so um, Schopenhauer. The Wisdom of Life. Schopenhauer is known as the pessimistic philosopher, but in the book, he's more of a realist, not a pessimist. And I agree with many of the ways he looked at life. And lastly, a lot of people probably say this, but How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a very great book. And before I came to the Valley, I read it. Um, in the Valley, I read it. And just in the tech world, I, I read it. And you just get better at making friends and just becoming more, more influential to people. Podcast-wise, I really like uh, The Knowledge Project. 
he writes a lot about mental models, mental frameworks, and things like that. I like Origins by Notation Capital. That's where they interview more GPs and LPs, more so LPs. You don't really get to hear from limited partners a lot. And so it's good to hear about how they invest in funds that are led by GPs. And lastly, Venture Stores by uh, Eric Tornberg, where he uh, interviews a ton of different founders in many different spaces. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Venture Stories. I don't know how he he finds like all these subject matter experts in niche areas, but yeah. Yeah, I think he just tweeted not too long ago that like he's very focused on very specific niches, like in healthcare and finance, very specific. It's it's very interesting. Yeah, makes for great content. Dwayne, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Dwayne Roy J. That's where you can find me. And I'm much more active on Twitter than anything, so anyone can just shoot me a DM or anything like that. Absolutely. And we'll, uh, we'll link to the show notes. Dwayne, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. This has been Ethan Lee Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.